Hello and welcome to this, the last episode of Renoites for 2023. Renoites is the weekly interview podcast where I, your host, Connor McQuivy, talk to various folks from here in Northern Nevada who are doing interesting or important work. This has been a fantastic season. I've had really great guests the last 10 episodes. Thank you so much to all of the folks who came on the show. We had our new police chief, Catherine Nance. We had our city manager, Doug Thornley. Today's guest is Kim Schweikert. She is from Our Place, which is the women and family shelter. That shelter provides both low barrier drop-in shelter services, as well as some longer-term programs to help people exit homelessness and find more stable long-term housing. We had a great conversation about what Our Place does here in the community, but also what the general landscape of homelessness looks like in Reno and in other cities, different strategies for addressing these important issues. Really great conversation. I was so grateful to have her on the show. We regularly do episodes on this show around homelessness. I've had a handful of guests that are in this field, and it was great to talk to someone with such long experience here in the Reno area. As I said, this is the end of the current season, so it is time to start thinking about the next one. If you have suggestions for guests or ideas for topics or want to get in touch in general, now's a great time to do that. You can shoot me an email, Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. And of course, on social media, on Facebook and Instagram, at Renoites, you can send me a message there and engage with posts, leave comments. I always like to hear from listeners to make sure that I am creating a show that you want to hear. So I appreciate your feedback. Thank you so much for listening and supporting this show. And now this week's guest, Kim Schweikert. Kim Schweikert from Our Place. Welcome to Renoites. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. It's good to have you here. So I've done a couple episodes around homelessness and housing and those kind of issues. And you are from Our Place, which is the women and family shelter, as I understand it. Yep. I have a bunch of questions about all kinds of homelessness issues. But first, can you just start by telling me a little bit about Our Place? I had Ben Castro on very early on the podcast, and we talked a little bit about it when it was brand new and still kind of dealing with pandemic and people couldn't be on it. Exactly. And now we're a a few years later. Three years. Three years. So uh, tell me about Our Place. What is it? What is uh, what's the story behind it? So Our Place was actually created as a partnership between the state of Nevada, actually Governor Sandoval and our director, Amber Howell, with Human Services Agency. And the cool part was there was kind of an initial discussion about maybe moving the men out of downtown and kind of building a big shelter in the northern part of the campus. But then there was a realization that we had all these unused buildings down on lower campus. So the Northern Nevada Adult Mental Health Campus is about 91 acres. And there's, I think, something like 45 buildings on it. And I think over 50% of them at one point were completely unused. So the state was using a couple of them for state offices. But really, in their heyday when they were built, they were meant to house people. They were meant to be homes. So we went in and we looked at them and we realized that the cost to remodel buildings that were already designed for housing was much more cost effective than, you know, kind of building something from the ground up. There was also a real desire and a need to separate the populations, meaning at the original downtown shelter, the community assistance center, it was men, women and families all there. And this allowed us the opportunity to separate out the women and families and then the men. Again, all all programs and all groups deserve the same amount of opportunities, but because about 60% of the women that we are serving are fleeing domestic violence, there was a lot of trauma associated with men and things like that. So it's really nice to just be able to give them their own spaces. So mm-hmm. yes, about 2018, 2019, we started construction and were able to build uh, three family homes and then our women's home. And then we since have expanded, added another women's home 
and then another family home because obviously there was a need for that. So we opened June of 2020 for the families and August of 2020 for the women, which again was right in the middle of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I have to give huge credit to my entire team for being there every day because we didn't have the option of, you know, working from home when you're working with this population. Right. How did you get involved in this work? You said you've been working in this world yeah. for a very long time yeah. in the area. So what's your background and how did you come to work with Our Place? So my background is I actually started with the county, gosh, 22 years ago, and I ran the Child Sexual Abuse and Adolescent Adult Sexual Assault Program for the DA's office. And then that allowed me the opportunity to connect with Mike Capello, who was the former director of Washoe County Social Services at the time. And he brought me over to run the medical unit and the domestic violence programs and things like that. In 2007, we opened the CAC downtown, and there was a need for there to be family shelter caseworkers. Mm -hmm. And so Volunteers of America ran the case management for the men and women, but they really decided that they needed kind of some expertise of human services for the families. And mm. that's actually how we kind of created the model for our place was what we learned in the last 13 years, 14 years with doing that mm -hmm. downtown. So and that's, that's the Record Street. That was shelter, the Record right? Street, yes. So I had the opportunity to work with that. And then also Grace Church gave us some money, Human Services Agency, some money to remodel some buildings. And my kind of on the side thing I love to do is decor and decorating. And so I got to remodel all those buildings. And so our place was the perfect gift to me as the ability to kind of create a program around design and culture. And so I got to do all of it. So from the ground up, I got to sit with the construction team, I'm sure much to their demise that I was <laughs> sitting there picking out tiles and colors and things like that. But then we, like I said, our place is really created to, to, create a space and and have there be a space that is safe and welcoming and warm for the guests. And it's also part of our model. Mm -hmm. And so again, I think my background in working with those populations, domestic violence, things like that for, you know, 20 years, gave me the opportunity to really create a space that, like I said, is safe and warm and allows people the opportunity to become successful. Excellent. Yeah, I want to talk to you more about our place and kind of the programs there. Sure. But before we get there, I have some questions just about, you know, homelessness in general, sure. both in this area and more broadly, like sure. different approaches to it. I know that there's various people involved in homeless services in Northern Nevada, sure. right? Yep. So we have, you mentioned the Record Street Shelter that's closed right now, but mm -hmm. that was a big part of the city kind of managing homelessness. Yep. And then the city and the county and city of Sparks all created the CARES Campus collectively, yeah. I guess, and now Washoe County is in charge. Yeah. Can you give kind of a lay of the land of these various organizations or agencies that are in charge of these things? Sure, sure. So I think from the very beginning, the city of Reno was kind of over homelessness, but all three, both cities and the county all participated in the programming, the funding of it, everything. So our place really became kind of Washoe County the lead in that simply because we were really dealing with women and families. Uh, we had the opportunity to partner with the state, things like that. Mm -hmm. So I think branching that off. And then when there was the opportunity to do the CARES campus, it made more sense for Washoe County in general to kind of be over the whole thing. So men, women, families, and there are some women at the CARES campus. So really the players kind of have always been the same. It's just kind of who is is sitting at the head of the table carving the turkey, I guess I would mm -hmm. say, is, is what has really changed. So 
Right now, Housing and Homeless Services, I, I'm sure you heard they recently moved under Washoe County Human Services Agency. And then our place is now kind of under that Housing and Homeless Services under Human Services Agency. So, you know, we just add, like to add acronym on acronym. Right. But because we're serving, you know, two different populations, we are both low barrier shelters. So both our place and the CARES campus are low barrier shelters. The only difference in is, is that our place only doesn't serve single men. Because we have many men on the campus that are with families. Uh, We have single dads, two dads, whatever it may be. As long as they have a child with them, then they are allowed to be in the family shelter. So Mm. it's really only those single men that are not allowed on the campus. And then the one restriction we have for our place, again, obviously, we have children on the campus, about 150 at any given time. Oh, wow. Because we have a daycare on the campus as well is no registered sex offenders, which would make sense. And then we, those really, really violent felons. So if someone's committed murder, something like that. But we have, everybody on our campus has some sort of criminal background, things like that. So I think the easiest way to kind of answer the question is, is we've all kind of been, like I said, in at the table, and now it's more kind of Washoe County taking the lead to try and kind of streamline the processes we're doing across the across mm-hmm. the spectrum. But we have many other shelters. So we have domestic violence shelters. We have ENYAP. We have Eddie House. So we really do have a lot of programs in our community that are striving to really work with this population and help you know them to be successful. We hear a lot about homelessness in Northern Nevada, but it's not just Reno. And I know that every time this topic comes up, it's we're not alone, right? There are a sure. lot of cities all across the West Coast, especially, that have a lot of issues with homelessness and helping sure. unhoused people. For... I don't know if this is a helpful way to frame things or not, but how are we doing in Reno compared to a lot of these other cities in helping these people? I know that I visited Portland not that long sure. ago, and the just the immediate sense that I got was that there were many more unhoused people with far fewer options sure. than we have here. Sure. But I don't want to say, oh, well, we're not as bad as Portland, so it's no, fine. Exactly. How do What does that look like as far as other cities and how we're doing in this big picture? Sure. So I can tell you kind of like our model and philosophy at our place, which I think, you know, again, I, I'm not in the fray of every other community, mm-hmm. but I have been. To, I was recently in Seattle. I was recently in Eugene. I took my daughter last week on a college tour of Washington and Oregon. Beautiful places to mm-hmm. live, right? But you do kind of get the sense that it is a little bit different. I can say with our place, our big thing is is empowerment, but accountability, kindness, but, you know, responsibility. So what we do that I think is a little bit different is, is that we wrap our guests up in services, but we also have that accountability piece, which I feel like just what I've heard and seen in models in other areas is that it's kind of like just meet them where they're at let them kind of do what they're doing. When they're ready to come to you, they will. Whereas we believe they're going to be in our shelter. We're going to give them everything they need, kindness, support, peer supports, mental health therapists, case advocates. You know, we just got a grant so we could board dogs if they have to go to, you know, if someone's ready for rehab and but has a pet, we will board their animals Mm. for them. So like what we have tried to do is eliminate every single possible barrier for them to be successful. And then if at the end of the day, they choose to, you know, not take advantage of those. Or like I said, maybe the substance use or mental health is just more powerful than their ability to make change at this point in time, then they may return to the streets. But instead of it being like, hey, you get to be with us for 30 days or 60 days, and then you're out for 30 days, we say you can be with us for a full six months, but then you're out for a full six months. Mm. And so kind of some of those guests that have been maybe circling the drain in our community for a very long time, six months is a pretty scary 
idea of where am I going to go for six months? So we really see a lot of them that have been experiencing homelessness five years, 10 years, 20 years in our community suddenly decide that they're ready to make a change mm-hmm. because because there's kind of that we're kind of forcing the hand. But in, again, like I said, at the end of the day, if someone's been an entire six months with us and we're asking them to leave, I know 100% we have done everything we possibly can to help them to be successful and make a change. Yeah. And again, like I said, I think other communities, you know, kind of believe more in the, like, meet them where they're at and let them decide they're ready for change, which I think can be, I think it can be helpful for some, but really detrimental for others. Mm-hmm. And I don't really believe that allowing someone to be on the streets, using substances, you know, freezing to death, things like that is kinder than, you know, kind of forcing someone, not forcing someone, encouraging someone to address their mental health and get them the medication and services that they need. Yeah, I know that the word service resistant is kind of mm-hmm. the 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 phrase that I hear sure. a lot for some people that don't tend to do as well in the sure. different shelters and services. Sure. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Is that an accurate way of describing people who are not doing well in these services or what are the issues with service resistant individuals? Sure. I think it's a really, I think service resistant is a really, I don't think it's a great descriptor. And again, this is just in my experience and knowledge. I think that there is always a reason why someone may not access a service, right? Service resistant is just an easy way to kind of label it. So to me, really what I see is it's our untreated mental health. So a lot of people believe it's everybody out there, ah, they don't want to go into shelter because they want to just do drugs all day and whatever. What we really see is it's that untreated mental health. And a lot of them are really not able to make the decision to get mental health treatment and make that change. And again, if any of, if any of your listeners have ever dealt with any type of, of mental health issue, whether it be depression, anxiety, whatever, what you have to go through to see a psychiatrist, to get your insurance, to get it, to, to get it approved, to get it on the medication on time. If mm-hmm. you miss your medication, you know, I mean, people who aren't even suffering from severe mental illness and experiencing homelessness have a really hard time accessing meds and mental health treatment, yeah. you know? So I really feel like, again, we need to make sure that we are eliminating all those barriers. And so I think it's not necessarily that they are like, I don't want to go into a shelter. It's maybe that they have untreated, you know, multiple personality disorder or bipolar, or they're very triggered by noises and people. And so they would much rather be in a tent by themselves or with their community mm. than being in a large shelter. And, and that's not even the CARES campus. I'm talking about our place. You know, our dorm is 48 women. So, you know, if you come in and there's 48 women there and you have all these external stimuli, that would be a nightmare. So, you know, I I would probably personally choose to be, you know, out with my peers mm. in my community unsheltered as well. So I think that that's, again, service resistant, I think, alludes to a choice. And I think a lot of times it's not a choice. It's really just they they don't have the ability to recognize that they need that mental health service or even access those other services. So yeah. we really work very closely with our outreach teams because they make those connections and they're able to kind of bring them to our place. We have an external shower and laundry facility. So if someone's not ready for shelter, not sure about shelter, our outreach teams can bring, you know, law enforcement teams. We have hope teams, most teams, they all know our place has that resource and they will bring them there. Mm. And then a lot of times, you know, maybe guests that have been shelter resistant for 20 years will see that, 
oh, this place is, you know, it's a 21 acre campus. It's big. It's not small. I can shower here. People are nice to me. They give me food. They give me clothes, you know, and then they're willing to kind of take a chance and come in. So we have seen a lot of guests that have, like I said, been shelter resistant for many, many years come in and access the services and actually have you know, change their lives. Yeah. It's part of it building trust with those people who've had 100%. bad experiences with various, you know, with police or whatever mm-hmm. that they, you know, assume that everyone who is offering help, I'm doing sure. air quotes, sure. is actually not going to help them or that they're going to have sure. problems. Is part of it just proving to them that it is a safe place for them and that it's not going to be like the experiences they've had in the past? Absolutely. And again, I would say people will go out and promise things like, oh, I can get you a house or I can do this to our unsheltered population. And then when that doesn't turn out or they don't come back or whatever it may be, they stop trusting the system. Mm. So that's why our ask isn't that you trust us. Our ask is that you walk through the gate. Mm. Our ask is that you just come in the gate get a bed, allow us to meet with you, allow us to offer you a safe space with food and warmth and clothing and all those things. And then if at the end of that, you are at a place where you want to make a change or you you want to access our services, you're more than welcome to. But I think the the ask of, okay, you're unsheltered and let's put you in an apartment, that is a really huge leap. Mm. And that is something that we don't believe in. So we talk all the time about how we're a person first model. Mm. So the person first model means whenever a guest comes in, we do a really extensive intake in a system called Good Grid. And then we're able to transfer that directly to the caseworkers. You know, they're, they're not asked the same questions over and over again. And then we really allow them to create their case plan. Now, the case plan has to have an exit strategy, right? So the case plan can't be, I'm just going to hang in our place for the rest of my life. But we don't determine what that exit strategy looks like because housing isn't always an option for people. But we do want them to be able to exit successfully and safely. And that, you know, can take a multitude of forms. You mentioned mental health, and I think that there's this distinction between mental health and mental health disorders and also behavioral health. Sure. And I know that some of the programs are focused on not just helping people get maybe medication for a diagnosed illness, but behavioral practices Mm -hmm. that are super beneficial but might not fall under that mental health category. Can you talk a little bit about that element of being in services, behavioral stuff? In addition to actual like diagnosed mental health conditions? Absolutely. And if you think about our unsheltered guests, again, the ones who have been unsheltered for a long time. So we have a lot of guests, like I mentioned, the 60% fleeing domestic violence. So they most likely are not ones that have been unsheltered in our streets for a very long time. So they are very different and have different needs than our guests that, again, are suffering from that untreated mental illness. So there's also varying levels of that untreated mental illness. So there's the untreated mental illness that is you know, you can't even have a coherent conversation with the guest because they just are so far into their mania or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And getting them to access services is just not realistic versus the guests that may be severely depressed or know that they have some sort of disorder, like feel like they, they feel bad about in certain times or high at times or low at times. And then getting them in with that mental health therapist that can help diagnose that. And then you mentioned kind of services. So we offer a lot of classes, individual counseling, things like that. Every person, you know, we, one of our mental health therapists, I remember once I said, you know, how many of our guests would you say, you know, kind of had have experienced trauma, have some sort of mental illness, behavioral health, whatever. And she said all of them, right? Because anybody who's experienced even one day unsheltered on the streets, especially a woman, they're just more of a vulnerable population. They've experienced some sort of trauma in that experience. And so we really look at everybody at our place needs that 
help and support and support groups and individual counseling and all those things. So that's why we bring all of that to them. The trauma, a lot of times it's trauma that has led them to homelessness, right? So it's not substance use. It's not loss of a job. It's not unwillingness to get a job. It is really trauma or strokes or seizures. We actually have been tracking and we have so many guests at our place that have seizure disorders. We actually kind of looked up and there wasn't a study done and there are more people experiencing homelessness that have seizure disorders. And again, maybe it's because they can't get a job because of their seizures or whatever it may be, but there's a lot of those things. There's a lot of different reasons why people come to be experiencing homelessness and that's why it's important to figure that out Mm -hmm. because if we don't figure out why they became homeless, just, you know, putting them in a home is not going to fix it if they're suffering from some mental illness or if they are treatable mental illness, I will say, or have some sort of trauma that they haven't been able to deal with in their life because they will just get into that house and then, or apartment or whatever it may be and cycle right back. Yeah. You mentioned the, there's a housing first model is something that we hear a lot about. You mentioned people first. And I know when Ben was on the show, he described it as being, it's housing first, not housing only. Yes. And part of the process for people being successful isn't just getting housing. It's getting shelter. And can you explain this, differentiate a little bit between a housing first model and a supportive housing model and, you know, like a shelter and services? Like what are the differences between those things and where does our place fit in that? Or what's your thoughts about housing first as we understand it? Sure, sure. So I think there's varying degrees of even the definition of housing first, right? So I 100% believe in the philosophy that someone shouldn't have to be treating their mental illness or free from substances or anything like that to get housing, which I think is in in essence the model of housing first. Is it's like you can't say, I'm only gonna work with this person over here that, you know, just lost their job but has never been evicted or anything. I that's the person I'm gonna choose to put in housing, right? Because honestly, they have the easiest opportunity mm-hmm. to get housing or get back into housing. So the model itself of housing first, meaning that we don't discriminate against and say these people have to meet these these barriers or eliminate these barriers before they can be housed. Got it. However, in some areas, they believe that, you know, you put the person in the house and then you case manage them once they're in there. And so our philosophy is people need to work on all those things prior to housing. So I guess the easiest way to explain it is, is there used to be a philosophy, and again, I, I don't mean locally, I mean just kind of nationally, that was like, make shelters really ugly and unfriendly and them not want to mm. be there. So that way they will get into housing. But if you take someone, you know, by the time they come to us, they have nothing. You know, if you had a family member, if you had a friend, if you had somebody, whether you're an individual woman or a family, you would not be coming to our place. So they have burned through all those supportive services. So by the time they get to us, they have nothing. And again, there's varied, varying degrees of nothing, right? You could have just lost your job or been fleeing domestic violence, or you could have no ID, mm. never worked, have a disability, but not on social security. So varying degrees of what someone needs to be successful to move out successfully. So with that, when we're assessing them for housing, we really want to make sure that we have eliminated all those barriers. As I said before, we want to give them the opportunity to seek treatment, whether it be substance abuse or mental health. And then when we put them into housing, they have a better opportunity to sustain it. So we definitely, I mean, housing is always part of our plan, but usually for our place, it's the very last. It's hmm. the very last thing that we do. Now, when you're talking about supportive housing, there are the guests that we work with that, you know, really just need that light touch. So they come in, like I said, they maybe just lost their job. 
They're, I mean, fleeing domestic violence also has varying degrees depending on what the person has had in their relationship. But when you're coming into shelter and you were assessing your ability to move out successfully, there's, like I said, those varying degrees in that. And so we really try to figure out, like some people can be in the shelter for a month and we can move them out successfully. And some have been with us two years. Mm. So that's why we really work on that safe and safe and stable area while they're there. Then there's the ones that move out and will probably need some sort of support for the rest of their lives, right? Just because given their degree of mental health, their degree of substance use, their degree of, you know, parenting skills and abilities. So there are those supportive housing programs that actually kind of require that check-in by the caseworker every month. And so the nice part is, is we're able to assess that while they're with us. Mm. And then when they transition out, then we're able to say, okay, this is a person that's going to need kind of monthly check-ins because we'd much rather have the person call us and say, hey, I've been in my, my apartment for six months. You know, I lost my job or daycare went up or whatever it may be. I can't pay rent this month. It would be much better for us to pay their, their one month of rent than them to get evicted again return to homelessness, all those things, because then that just adds, you know, another barrier for them to be able to be successful. Yeah, yeah. I think that the the cost effectiveness, I know this feels like kind of a cold way to talk about people's no, sure. lives, but the, the cost of people cycling through chronic homelessness, mm-hmm. through shelters mm-hmm. over years and years, sometimes can be avoided by mm-hmm. a, you know, an upfront cost of mm-hmm. just helping them earlier on. And we talked previously about chronic homelessness and yes. the approach that Our Place has and the effect that you've had on people with, you know, chronically homeless individuals. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that chronic homelessness and, sure. and the approach that Our Place has taken for that? Sure. So one of the things that was pretty amazing to me, I had always worked with families prior to Our Place. So I had worked with families for about 16 years. And then we created our model for Our Place after what we did with families. Again, learning what worked, what didn't over 16 years allowed us that opportunity. But I was really kind of amazed that that emergency shelters are kind of like the end all for everybody. So if someone is being released from the hospital and they can't meet their ADLs or things like that, but they are experiencing homelessness, sometimes it's like, well, we can't get them into skilled nursing, whatever, let's just send them to a shelter. When we first opened, we had about 85% of the women that we were serving were chronically homeless. And they were chronically homeless pretty much in our community. They were the ones that were kind of circling the drain. And so we really tried to assess how they got there, what their needs were, how could we get them out of this. For some of them, we had to create kind of a supportive housing for those with mental illness because we didn't have long-term housing for anyone experiencing a mental illness that they could stay in long-term. So Washoe County HSA did a pilot program with WellCare, and we still have that home open for 20 beds for women. And so some of the women that had been experiencing homelessness in our community for 10, 20 years, we were able to move into that home They have med management, things like that, something that an emergency shelter can't do. Mm. And so they were able to actually like get off the streets and live kind of those meaningful lives, which I will tell you a story about one of those guests, just because it's one of my, it's one of my favorite stories to tell. And it really, I think truly depicts our place, but we went from 85%. And then at the end of our first year, we were at 46% and then we're at 25%. And then last year we were at 16%. So What that means is that we're not serving the same women over and over again. Mm. And that is really our goal, right? So we are really trying to say, like, how can we do permanent and sustainable things for our guests instead of serving them over over and over again? And the way to do that is to determine how they became homeless, you know, give them all of those services, and then help try to find some supportive housing or whatever it is on the way out. 
So my favorite story is about one of our guests. I can, I will say her first name, Linda, because she has given me permission to. So Linda had been experiencing homelessness in our community for 20 plus years. She was actually had a payee or court ordered payee, which for anybody who works in this field, they understand how really hard it is to get that. And so when she came into our place, she came in pretty early on. I know she was with us for Thanksgiving, our very first year. So I would say November of 2020, she was with us. But an article had come out in January, and it was about her, and it was about why she wouldn't go to shelters and how she didn't feel they were safe and she would never stay there. And so it was kind of comical to all of us because she'd been with us for two months, and the article had come out. So she'd obviously been interviewed you know, mm. a long time before. She was with us. We quickly called her the mayor because she would kind of follow us. Every time I would be given a tour, she'd come up and walk around with me and, you know, make jokes with everybody. We really, we adored her. But she was one that we realized would be in shelter forever. She Mm -hmm. would be with us forever. She had, even though she had a PE, she had no ability. She was 72 years old. She had no ability to cook for herself. She hadn't cooked in 20 years, right? She'd been living on the streets. So everything was kind of given to her in already pre-made form. So Mm -hmm. We moved her into the home, and within about four months, I think because her body was no longer fight or flight, she got, you know, kind of congestive heart failure and all those things, and we ended up moving her into a skilled nursing home. And she listed her caseworker from our place as her fictive Ken to notify when she was kind of at the end of life. And so a team, it was middle of COVID, so two of our caseworkers went down there, and the rest kind of teamed into her. And, you know, when they walked in, she got a tear in her eye. She could no longer communicate. But even though she passed, the thing that I think is the most powerful about our places is after 20 years of really being unsheltered, she was truly that shelter-resistant person. For whatever reason, she came in and lived with us for almost a full year and ended her life in a beautiful, skilled nursing home and surrounded by people that truly did care for her and love her. And her story would have been very different if our place didn't exist. Mm -hmm. I know everybody always wants numbers, but to me, it's always about the story because that's what really matters. And our community is learning who we're serving and what their needs are and how do we get them out or how do we help them to be successful? Hey there, listeners. I'm interrupting the show just for a moment to ask a quick question. What is a show like this worth to you? My hope is that local media is of enough value that people will contribute a little bit of money to make it financially sustainable. You might have noticed that this show does not have ads or sponsors. I've been trying really hard to avoid that just because I find them annoying and I want to maintain the independence of this project, but it does take a lot of time and a little bit of money to produce. Thankfully, I have a handful of supporters on Patreon. Patreon is a website that allows creators like me to have their projects funded directly by the people who want them. So that's for artists, creators, podcasters, creatives of all type. If you go to patreon.com slash renoites, you can learn more. Basically, there's a handful of different levels you can contribute at as little as $3 a month, which I think of as kind of like the tip jar. If you would throw a dollar in the tip jar for this episode, maybe you should sign up and automatically contribute a few bucks a month as an ongoing tip to support the work that I'm doing. And that goes all the way up to about 20 bucks a month. If you have the resources to really support local media projects like this, it makes a huge difference to have ongoing financial support so I can continue doing this work. Again, learn more at patreon.com. And thank you so much to the folks who've been supporting the show so far. And now back to this episode. 
I do have questions about some of the other models. I know that sure. our place has your model that has this kind of ongoing support, but with the CARES campus. So mm-hmm. the idea, my understanding of that is that it's all various services in one place. There's a plan for it to continue to grow and have mm-hmm. more services. Mm-hmm. It's a very large shelter. I think mm-hmm. it's 600 beds. Is Yes, I think so. It gets called a mega shelter a mm-hmm. lot. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the the need for that, or if you think that's a good model to have kind of a centralized place. Every time I talk to various folks from the city or the county, they always say, oh, yes, we have services at CARES. We direct Mm -hmm. people to CARES. We send people Mm -hmm. to CARES. How has that worked out? I also hear there are people who are resistant to that Mm -hmm. model of sheltering, and they don't want to go to a large shelter. So can you talk a little bit about the CARES campus in, in contrast to these other services and shelters that we have? Sure. I, you know, again, it's not a program that I'm over. I will say that I do know the county has invested a lot of energy and time into trying to replicate our place in the fact that they do have on-site case managers, they have mental health therapists, they have things like that. And they're currently, you know, dividing the the shelter into different sections. So I think the original, you know, mega shelter as, as you will, in my memory of it, because it was COVID was, they were really trying to create a place that could house because with six feet of distancing and our, you know, population of people experiencing homelessness, like you have to quadruple the size of a shelter in order to meet social distancing. Right. So the original intent of that was to make it so that way you could do, you know, have 300 people socially distanced, right? So then when the county took over, they, like I said, they have really tried to go in and kind of section things out. Because I think, as I said before, you know, a woman who maybe has has sensory issues or things like that, going into even our dorm that's got 48 women is really you know, it's a lot. It's it's too much. So again, going into a big giant space for 600 people, like I said, that's why they've started sectioning things off. They've actually, you know, have a whole section that's just for women, mm. which the nice part about us, you know, kind of coming together and being under the same umbrella is, is that, you know, they have specific case managers for the women there. So they can frequently talk to the women at our shelter. So we're making sure that the women are at the most appropriate place. Oh, good. Know, yeah. For them. Yeah. That's yeah. Been, I was going to ask, what's the collaboration? Yeah. Or how do you work with other shelters? to make sure that people end up in the right place and the right services. Yeah. Yeah. And like, example, as I said, you know, the domestic violence shelters. So we are working very closely with DVRC as they're trying to expand because they are the emergency shelter and they're a secret shelter, right? What is that? I don't know what that is. Oh, sorry. Domestic Violence Resource Center. So it used to be called CAW years and years ago, Committee to Aid Abused Women. They changed it, gosh, I want to say maybe eight years ago to DVRC. It is our largest domestic violence shelter, but then there's also Safe Embrace, which is in Sparks. So Safe Embrace is in Sparks, DVRC is in Reno. Hmm. The nice part about, like I said, both of those shelters is they are a secret location. Our place is not. So when we have a woman that's fleeing DV, our place, while we are fully fenced and have 24-hour security, you know, obviously we are not a secret location, so not as safe for them. But speaking of shelter collaboration, so we obviously, every time a woman comes to us first, our first option is to try and get them to a DVRC. If they're in the age range for Eddie House, we try to get them to the Eddie House, you know, so we're, we're constantly calling those different areas because we really want the guests to be in the most appropriate place for their needs. And at the end of the day, as much as I love our place and I believe we've created a beautiful and safe space, we are still an emergency shelter. Mm. And so we want, you know, when we work with the Empowerment Center, we work with Crossroads, which are, you know, kind of our sober living programs. And so we really do our best to say, like, 
where is the most helpful and supportive fit for this individual? And again, with CARES Campus, if someone goes to the CARES Campus first, then they always call over, you know, every morning and they're like, hey, we have this person. Do you have beds? Can we get them over there? And so we work very closely to get them, you know, kind of over to our place if they are a woman experiencing homelessness. Oh, right on. A couple other models that I'm familiar with is the safe camp and also yep. safe parking has been brought up a couple of times. I remember it feels like a couple of years ago now. I remember a city council member talking about being really interested in this idea of safe parking. A lot of unhoused people are living in their vehicles. Sure. Mm-hmm. I, I have visited the safe camp at CARES. And when we talked previously, I know there's kind of different ideas about what a safe camp should be as mm-hmm. far as barriers and different models for what a safe camp is. I definitely believe that there is a kind of missing tier, but I don't believe it should be at our place, meaning mm-hmm. that... We have our dorm, so everybody comes into the dorm. Then if they're working with their case manager, they can move to a wing. We have a Hope Home on our campus, which was, you know, we were able to do that with Grace Church. They're a wonderful supporter of our place. And in that home, it's a risk reduction home. So women can transition from, you know, the dorm to a wing to Hope Home. Or we also have our Joy Home on the campus, which is for our senior women, which we have 20 beds, and that's for essentially 55 and older. What we are missing is kind of the two spectrums, I guess I would say. So a safe camp, if you want to call it that, I mean, I feel like we have a safe camp here, but just an area that is kind of the lowest barrier. So, you know, years ago or some areas, it's like, okay, you have a parking lot, you have tents that the guests bring themselves, and you still provide those services. So it would still be our operator rise. But it's really, you know, if you are at our place and you just don't want to make changes, then that's where you go. So it's not like we send you to anywhere unsheltered in the community. It's more there. Hmm. And then if you get there, but, you know, it's it's really that is the area that you want to make uncomfortable, for lack of a better word, meaning, you know, the bare necessities. Obviously, you want people to have the bare necessities because that's everyone has a right to that. But really wanting them to be like, gosh, maybe I maybe I do want to like get back to the dorm, or maybe I do want to have the opportunity to go to a wing or whatever it may be, because having those tiered systems allows us to have a lot of that. Like I said, when we, when we talk about requiring the guests to have some sort of accountability and, and there being, you know, consequences for actions and things like that, we're not returning them to the streets. We're saying, Hey, you're in a wing and this is a nice place for you, but you stopped meeting with your caseworker. And so now you're going to have to go back to the dorm. So again, we're not returning them to the streets Mm. we're returning them to the dorm. The other piece we're really missing is that transitional housing. So we were fortunate enough to have the state of Nevada offer us the ability to lease an acre at the top of our place. And what we want to build is some sort of transitional and supportive housing. And the transitional is in the word, right? So the ability for someone to be there short term and then hopefully transition onto something else. But then that supportive housing piece, while still being on the campus, For those guests that, you know, are ones with severe mental illness that are completely unwilling and unable to address that, they will be at our place forever because I can't in good conscience put someone that has no ability to work a case plan out on the streets Mm -hmm. because it is due to no fault of their own and they would be so vulnerable. So I would love to have some sort of housing that combines the two on the campus that allows, you know, those women to have some like their own private space. Uh, Maybe we're still providing meals and things like that, but they're not spending the rest of their lives in an emergency shelter. Yeah. I know a lot of the issues with homelessness is drugs and alcohol, substance Mm -hmm. use disorders. Mm -hmm. And that seems to come up a lot when we talk about people who are unhoused. And one of the barriers often is shelters that require 
sobriety, sober living facilities, those kind of things. And I know that you have both low barrier shelter and you have sober programs in this community. Can you talk about the the options for people who maybe have substance use disorder and making sure that we can still help them too without necessarily requiring sobriety to get into housing. What does that look like for someone who uses substances, who is unhoused, but wants to be housed? How can they work through these various programs and systems without hitting a wall where it says, Oh, sorry. Well, if you're not going to get sober, then you're nothing else we can do for you. What do we do or what do you do with, with folks like that? Sure. So I want to start with the comment of most people experiencing, you know, kind of unsheltered are those using substances, which I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that, but I think it's more the chicken or egg thing, right? So what I have experienced and seen firsthand is that a lot of that, the unsheltered, shelter resistant, whatever they want to call them are really those ones with that untreated mental health, right? So they might be using substances, But that's because it's a lot easier to get meth than it is to get, you know, your antipsychotics. So not to make an excuse or say, hey, that's allowable. But really, it's more that untreated mental health that we see that is leading to that kind of chronic and long term homelessness versus it being substance use. Now, we do certainly have many of our guests that are experiencing homelessness due to substance use. And if that is it, the substance use, there are many options. As I mentioned, everybody who's coming in the dorm or even in the wings, because we are a low barrier shelter, they are allowed, they cannot bring drugs or alcohol on the campus, but they can come back intoxicated and high and all those things. And we will not deny them a bed for that. And that is absolutely appropriate. And we should do that. We have our Hope Home, like I said, that it is risk reduction. The reason for Hope Home is, again, as I mentioned, there are many people experiencing homelessness, many women, that it is due not at all to substance use. So we wanted to offer them kind of a safe space free from that substance use Mm. for homelessness. And then the ones that are really working on recovery. So we have a pilot program. So our crossroads program, we have a women and family crossroads program, as well as a men's. We work with the women and families, which is through human services agency as well. The pilot program is actually if someone has applied and approved to get into crossroads, but there's a wait list, right? Like that would be, I guess the short answer is, is wait list to get into all those programs. They can move up to our Hope Home and then they can go over and do the day use so they can go over and, you know, test whether it be drug for drugs or alcohol. They can participate in day use programs and then come back and actually live in Hope Home until there is that opening, Mm. which has been a really nice ability to add that and offer that to our guests because if you're ready and you're like, today I want to get sober, and it's like, oh, it'll be three months until you can get in, that is an unrealistic expectation for anyone. If then there's also emergency. So if we have someone who, you know, is like, I really need to go, but they are actively, you know, using drugs on the day on a daily, they might actually need to go to a detox first. So they might need to go to Reno Behavioral Health. They might need to go to the Mallory Center. They might need to go to detox first before they could get into a program. Mm. So we have step two, we have the empowerment center. So we do actually have a lot of sober living options in our community and treatment programs. It's really just about the willingness of the participant. If you want that, I do think we have the ability to offer that to them. And then, as I mentioned, we do have, I just was able to secure a grant so we can offer boarding. So again, a huge barrier to shelters is often pets. We've served over 620 pets at our place in three years. So 
understanding that that will be a barrier for them moving forward for a lot of things, whether it be an apartment, whether Mm. it be, you know, being able to seek treatment. So we just had a guest recently that, again, had been experiencing homelessness for many, many years. And she kind of said, well, I can't go to treatment because I have my dogs. And we were like, oh, no, you can go to treatment because we can board your dogs. Uh And, you know, then it kind of came down to like, do you really want this? Or have the dogs been that crutch for you to be able to say, I can't seek treatment because I have dogs. Again, that goes back to the ability to eliminate those barriers. But if we didn't have that grant, that would have been a barrier because there's no way that this guest could have afforded to put her dogs in boarding to be able to go do a detox program. Yeah. Another one of the issues that comes up is kind of this bare minimum kind of support, right? We're coming up on winter right now. It is very cold. We had, I think, almost 100 unhoused individuals die last year Mm -hmm. in Washoe County Mm -hmm. or in Northern Nevada, something like that. And it's about to be winter. Mm -hmm. Hypothermia is very real and very dangerous. Mm -hmm. One of the asks, I think, from a lot of the homeless advocate community Mm -hmm. is more emergency warming shelters, Mm -hmm. those kind of things. Can you talk a little bit about those you know, very basic essential needs to keep people alive. Obviously, that's what, you know, the low barrier shelter idea is for. Is that enough? Do we need more to basically save, you know, those people who who died last year, sure, right? Sure. What what could we have done or what should we do to make that number lower? Right. Well, and I again, I, 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 that number in and of itself, my understanding is, is a lot of those are overdoses, mm-hmm. there's vehicle accidents, there's, you know, so it wasn't a hundred people that were, you know, freezing on the streets. And again, it could be someone had a fentanyl overdose and and then also they were unsheltered. And so it was kind of, you know, a, a combination of the two. Yeah. That being said, obviously we do want everyone to be able to have the op- option of shelter. And I do believe, again, this is just based on information that has been shared with me because I don't run the warming centers, but we did not turn uh, families or women away. So I know there was kind of a, a lot of like, oh, we need more shelters for families. So we do have a wait list of families, but a lot of those families are, you know, housing insecure versus being unsheltered. Mm. Obviously, Human Services Agency also has the Child Protective Services umbrella. So we would not have a family, you know, a mom show up with five kids and be like, ah, we're full, you know, good luck. (laughs) Good luck on the river with you and your three kids, you know, so we always will take care of and manage and make sure that children are safe. That's like 100%. So I've been doing this for 16 years, and we have never turned a family away or had a family that was unsheltered during summer, winter, whatever it may be that we were aware of. You know, again, there may be a family living in their car that we don't know about, but if we know about them, we are certainly taking care of them. As far as individual women, we absolutely did not turn any women away last year at our place. We are at capacity a lot of days, but we are not like 10 women a day just saying good luck out in the elements. What I have been told, and again, this is not what I have run, is the emergency shelters, and but that last year we or they had the warming centers that they're going to do again. And my understanding is, is that last year they were never full to the point that like we were, they were turning people away. So I do think that we have capacity. It goes back to, I think that original comment of, do we need to build more shelters, have more shelters? No. What we need is more housing, which again, I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later. But for me, I do think that we have the capacity to meet the need in our community with the resources and supports that we currently have. Yeah. You mentioned housing. Let's go to housing because okay. that is the biggest issue issue is when someone has come into the shelter, they've done all sorts of programs, maybe they've done sober living, maybe they've done all of these things to move them on the path to being permanently, independently housed, but there is literally nowhere for them to go. How do you have an exit strategy for people experiencing homelessness 
if there are straight up not enough doors and roofs. Right. Yeah. How how do you, as someone who works in this world, address that issue of actual existence of housing? Sure. Sure. So it's it's funny because, again, everyone's like, oh, we need more affordable housing, more affordable housing. I guess I shouldn't say that's funny, but we definitely need more affordable housing. But it's what does that affordable housing look like? So is it affordable and it's low barrier, right? So does do they is the housing that they're building just affordable or will they take evictions? Will they take felons? Will they take those types of things? Because simply building affordable housing doesn't necessarily help the people that we're serving at our place. They certainly are helping people that are making minimum wage and things like that. And they all deserve and should have that affordable housing piece. But if we're really trying to exit families, women, men from homelessness, you know, the ones that get to us, as I mentioned before, they have nothing because they burn through everything. Every family we serve has at least one eviction. Most of them have two. And there's only two apartment complexes currently in Reno that will take evictions. When you're talking about someone who has come in, worked very hard, whether it be on sobriety, mental health, they've gotten a job, they've, you know, they haven't worked in 10 years because they're fleeing domestic violence and they got a job and they got all these things and they're applying after to apartment after apartment after apartment or because they've been in domestic violence relationships, they have no credit history, right? Because they've never signed or they have no, no rental history at all. So mm-hmm. they don't have the eviction, but they have no rental history. And so then an apartment complex is like, well, we don't know anything about you, so we're not going to rent to you. So it is true that there is just barrier after barrier after barrier. What I will say is, and it's always been interesting to me, which is why our model is about time and allowing people time in the shelter, is, as I've mentioned, I've been over the family shelter for 16 years. And our success rate of moving families out has been no lower than 70% in 16 years. And families are much more difficult to house than individual men and women because they need larger units. Yeah. You know, kids, ha- we have to go where kids' schools are, all of those things. And then more families have evictions than single women that I've experienced. So when we're looking at that, though, the abil- the fact that we've kind of consistently been able to successfully house, and there were times where there were no jobs, but there was lots of Reno Housing Authority housing. There was times where there was no housing and no jobs. There was times where there was really expensive housing and a lot of jobs, which is where we are right now. Mm -hmm. So we have cycled through in our community, you know, really affordable housing, but zero jobs and been able to successfully house people or families, I guess I was my specific because that's what I've been doing the longest throughout that. But what every single one of them has needed is time because really that's the, that's the answer. The The real answer is we need to create affordable housing that is low barrier. But the answer to what we currently have is families and women need to be given time in the shelter to be able to pay off an eviction, pay off a credit, pay off whatever they need to before they actually apply to that housing, because then they might actually have the opportunity to get it. Yeah. Can you tell me more about the time thing? Because I know you mentioned that our place has, you said, six month in, six month out. I know that the CARES campus has a different model of how long you're allowed to be in and how long you're out, I think, or different shelters have different policies, right? Yeah, I don't I don't specifically know what CARES, CARES is. Ours is, like I said, six months in, six months out. And that is specifically for the individual woman. So for an individual woman, you can come in and, like I said, you can do absolutely nothing. 
And if you decide you don't want to engage in case management, you don't want to see a mental health therapist, you don't want to see our peer support staff, you don't want to do anything but kind of sleep in a bed and get some free meals, then you will be out for six months. Now, our caseworkers are constantly trying to engage with them. Our mental health therapists are. So it's not like we're like, oh, they, they check the box that they don't want to be seen. We're just going to leave them alone for six months. That being said, it's do they have the capacity to work a case plan, Hmm. right? So if someone has that severe mental illness and they have no ability to even meet with a caseworker or do a case plan, that is different. We're not going to say, oh, you've been here six months and, you know, you're completely nonverbal and you're talking to, you know, you think you're married to Tom Selleck. You go ahead. Good luck out on the streets. But with the families, it's a little bit different because families have children and families have to be able to support themselves. So we do have families that may be with us, you know, two months. We give them a lot of time. But if we have, you know, a parent and we have eliminated all those barriers, meaning we've gotten the kids into school, we've gotten the kids into daycare, and they're absolutely refusing to look for employment or do anything to help their family move forward and be able to be self-sustaining, then at that point we would give them kind of, we call them motivational letters to say, hey, like you now have three weeks to get gain employment or you could lose your opportunity to be here. You know, I have 27 other families on the wait list looking for this opportunity and you've been given three months and you're kind of doing nothing. So mm-hmm. we don't have the like, you get full six months if you're a family because they have children that they are responsible for. And we have a wait list of 27 families. So we are much more, more kind of on top of, you know, families and setting goals. But again, if you're a mom, we have a maternity newborn. So if a mom comes in eight and a half months pregnant, we don't say, oh gosh, you got a month to get a job and, you know, get your kid in daycare. And, you know, we're very understanding of that. But once, once, you know, that mom has gone through that and the child is the age that they can go to daycare and things like that, then we do start putting in those requirements. On that issue of kind of motivating people to do the things that are good for them. Sure. One of the things that's come up when I've talked to folks from like the downtown Reno partnership or Mm -hmm. with, you know, various people who are on the enforcement side. I did an episode recently this season with our new police chief. Oh, cool. And one of the things that constantly comes up is this. How do I put it? We had a lot of conversation about sweeps a couple of years ago. Yep. Yep. And now you don't hear about that as much because we don't have a lot of the big unsanctioned encampments that we did a couple of years ago. But the the common response that I get is that they're frequently checking in with unhoused individuals downtown. They're seeing what they need. They're letting them know whatever they need. They can get them there. Those kind of nudges, continuing yep. nudges or, you know, however forceful or not those things are. Yeah. I mean, I guess the question is, can you talk a little bit about the enforcement piece of the laws around homelessness and and the the push versus pull i guess of getting people into services and shelter sure i i hope this is going to answer your question the way you want to i'm going to give an example of a family that we had and they came to us and they when they came they came in family of five and our caseworker met with them and they had been in something like 27 shelters across the United States in in a span of like six years. And when the caseworker was like, okay, what's your, what's your plan? What are we going to do? Da, 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 da. They were like, what do you mean? Like, why do we have, and they literally said not in one of the other shelters were they asked to create a case plan. Did they have to, you know, look for work? Did they have to do this? They were simply shelters. So, I know you're more talking about like the sweeps and things like that, but but my answer is more geared towards 
that accountability piece is what is the most important. And just offering a shelter and a place for someone to stay for three months, a lot of them will say, I'm just going to stay here for three months. But if you have that nudge of like, hey, I need you to complete these three things, I need you to do this, then sometimes even their whole perspective changes. So both Mm. of those parents ended up getting jobs. The kids got in school. Kids hadn't been in school in six years because they just bounced from place to place to place. Kids got in school, parents both got jobs, and they're still maintaining and successful. Again, it's like, you know, how do you know your model works? Well, I've compared it to 27 other family (laughs) shelters across the United States with one family. But I think it's same for individual adults, right? I think that it is that you know, constantly checking in and not just being like, okay, you get to you get to be in this spot for three months and then we'll move you to another spot for three months and then we'll move you to another spot for three months. Because, you know, it's like with children on on many levels is if you don't give them any accountability, they will run wild. But when you start enforcing things and asking them to do things, it's what they really crave, mm. right? I've seen it many, many times, even with our individual women that will say, I'm so grateful that our place kind of forced me to look at myself and realize that this isn't the life I wanted to live anymore. On that topic, kind of related, the the criminalization of sure. homelessness is also a big issue where if that threat is, well, if you don't move from here, you might go to jail. Sure. The, you know, the, the stick versus the carrot on sure. that one. And I know, so Sparks recently, they just passed a new law that makes it illegal to reside in a car that you know, made it much more likely that there will be criminal enforcement of people for being unhoused. Can you talk a little bit about that element of where's that line between, you know, positively encouraging people into services and the regular nudging versus, you know, the threat of going to jail or the criminalization of homelessness? Is there a, is that a blurry line? Is that a clear line? How should we be approaching or how should, I guess, law enforcement approach homelessness, do you think? I think that's really hard because (laughs) I'm not in law enforcement, right? I think our law enforcement partners are amazing. In fact, Reno PD stole one of my mental health therapists for the most (laughs) team, which she's phenomenal. And so I'm so great that she's out there serving our unsheltered. And she learned so many things, taught us so many things, but also I feel like learned so many things from our place that she really uses that with our unsheltered population, which is amazing. My world is more once they get into shelter, but I will say the very first question you asked me, was about those other places like Seattle and Portland, whatever. And there is an amazing YouTube. It's it's a documentary, but it's not on like Netflix. And it's called Fighting for the Soul of Seattle. And so what Seattle really did is it completely decriminalized, you know, homelessness. And so on there, there is a gentleman who has committed something like 75 crimes. And they have a law that says if you are experiencing homelessness, if you're mentally ill, if you're I think, addicted to substances, you essentially cannot be found guilty of crimes. And then they kind of show a few minutes later, there's a woman walking down the street and she's looking for the courthouse because she's, you know, lost and she's on her phone. And this guy walks by her and punches her in the face and knocks her out. And, you know, she has fractures on her face and things like that. So I think that because our community offers shelters and has opportunities for people to come to places that are safe and offer case management and things like that. I do think that it is important to have that nudge, right? 
because we have those services. If communities don't have those services, then I don't think it's fair. As I mentioned, we have done everything to eliminate every barrier for shelter. So there is no reason that any woman or family should not be able to come to our place. Again, with the exception of the registered sex offenders. And that's usually what they do is they bring them to our place and they say, let's look at this. And then we greet them with the therapist and things like that. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, but it, I do think that there is a very important distinction between completely decriminalizing and allowing kind of any type of behavior to be acceptable based on experiencing homelessness versus if you don't go to shelter, you're going to go to jail. And I really feel like our community is more on the side of, hey, we just don't want to get to a point where we are just allowing any type of behavior, whether it be criminal, substance use, you know, violence, to be accepted because someone is unsheltered. And I work very closely with our most team, you know, Christy Butler, who is the supervisor. I've worked with her for years. So I do think that they are trying really hard to work with the population and meet them where they're at. And because I think we offer so many supportive services, I think that you have to sort of, you know, kind of push the envelope, for lack of a better word. Yeah. I know there's not like a simple magic bullet to solve homelessness, of course, but are there any like particular low-hanging fruits, things that we're not doing that we could be that are, you know, affordable, that are doable, things that you wish were happening that you don't see happening here in this area that sure. would make a big impact. Sure. I mean, it goes back to, you know, it, I feel like we're all broken records when we say housing, right? Because it's just such a big, huge thing. And so I will say that our place, we are doing everything we can. And I think we are providing everything necessary for women and families to be able to successfully transition out of homelessness. The two big things are housing and also we need more mental health supportive housing programs because we do have so many of those guests that are suffering from mental illness that are, as I said, unwilling or unable to manage that and they will be experiencing homelessness forever. Those are the ones that are always going to be in our community because they they could never, even if we put them in an apartment, they could never maintain it or sustain it unless, like I said, it's on the Our Place campus and we have staff that is still checking on them all the time. So the two pieces I think that are the biggest, I mean, I don't know that they're low-hanging fruits, is those housing options that are not only affordable, but they are low barrier. Number two would be really an ability to offer supportive and long-term housing for people that are suffering from mental illness, because we don't have that. And that is a huge portion of who is still residing and are kind of long-term guests at our place in the women's shelter. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the Soulful Seeds Garden okay. Project. Yes, yes. So when we did the lease with the state of Nevada, we had, I believe it's three acres that was kind of right down on Glendale and just a bunch of dirt. And there was a vision with Erston Witten. Is his last name? I was like, what's Erston's last name? And uh, his wife, Dee, to do soulful seeds there. So, you know, it kind of started out as a concept. We were built and it was like, oh, it's going to be this garden over there. But they have their executive director, Brooke, 
And Kara, they she's their intern who they just hired, and I forget what her exact new title was, but they are phenomenal. And they truly are partnering with our place, right? You know, a lot of times you hear they're like, oh, we're going to partner, we're going to do all these things. And they really have been amazing. So every Monday, the guests get to go over and garden and they go with our peer support staff and it's our women in our women's home and some of our families. Every other Tuesday, they do beekeeping. So they actually have the full suits oh, that's for fun. them to get into. Yeah, absolutely. And then every Thursday, our therapists go and do garden therapy, which is really phenomenal. They tell me that they have guests that really kind of are, are closed off. But when they're gardening in the soil, they'll just start talking about things. And so it's not like a they go over there and the therapists are like, today, we're going to talk about feelings. It's, oh, hey, we're harvesting carrots. And then the therapists just walk around and they just start talking about, you know, things that they're feeling and seeing and whatever it may be. And then they have had a chef that comes in. They're trying to do it every other month to our Hope Home. And so the ladies go down a garden and then they get to go up and then they cook a meal with them. So it's just like all the really cool things that you we envisioned when we were planning it. And they've kind of really made it come to fruition. So they have been awesome. And then, gosh, what was it? At the end of August, Grace Church, like I mentioned, they're one of our huge supporters. They came and brought their entire congregation to our place. And 100 of them were in the garden and working on the garden. And about 300 of them were on our place weeding and cutting down trees and oh, wow. painting benches and painting sheds and all that kind of stuff. So it was really awesome to see our community. That's the other thing I will say that's so awesome about our places. Our community is so supportive of us. A lot of people don't even know we're there, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'll tell people <laughs> where we are and they'll be like, I cannot believe this place is here because we're kind of hidden, mm-hmm. which I like too. I've just been really humbled and amazed by how many um, – community members have come together. Reno Rotary, they're going to do a story on this, but Reno Rotary built us, got us a basketball hoop, like a really expensive, beautiful platinum level basketball hoop because we had our kids, they were playing on this donated basketball hoop. And so one of the kids would have to stand on the back of it and hold on to it uh, so that it wouldn't fall over when the, you know, bigger kids were dunking on mm-hmm. it. And so we just got that completed. And it's fun to pull on campus and see a bunch of kids out there playing basketball, you know, living normal lives, right? That's that's our goal with the campuses is we don't want anybody, whether it be a woman or a family, to feel like they're living in an emergency shelter. We want them to feel like that's their home mm-hmm. while they're there. And again, that is another piece to the model that I think has really helped us to have so many guests be successful is that they do feel safe and they do feel cared for and they do feel like they're important and they do feel like they now have options out of homelessness that isn't just, you know, to cycle it and return to the streets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I should have mentioned at the beginning, I've been to the Our Place campus and it's beautiful. It's really nice. (laughs) It's got trees and grass and paths and it's like, does not feel like a, what you imagine as a shelter environment. Exactly. Uh, And I think that is something that was surprising to me because I, you know, our association of shelters is it's bunks, it's dorms, Mm -hmm. it is sparse, but it's a, it's a beautiful space that you have there. And I think that it speaks to the success that you have, that it's actually a desirable place to be that I'm sure people are much more willing to go to than what you think of as a traditional shelter. And what we've learned too, I should have said this in the very beginning, when we were building our place, we modeled it after what we were doing at the family shelter. That is true. It was a great partnership between the state of Nevada and us, but we took a lot of time to speak to the advocates in the community. Our operator, which is Rice, who you interviewed, Ben, they have been in our community grassroots, you know, serving this population for 10 years before mm-hmm. they ever got our contract. So we met with the unsheltered guests and said, what do you need? So it wasn't just us kind of sitting in a room with a whiteboard brainstorming, let's do this, let's do this. 
But the other thing that we learned, and it's always been my philosophy, is that if you give people nice things, they will take care of it. And so we've had hundreds of families and thousands of women come through our place, and the buildings look the same as they did. Now, that doesn't mean our maintenance team isn't every now and then patching up a wall or, you know painting off crayons when kids, you know, mark on their bedroom walls or whatever, right? But I have that in my home. So, uh, you know, right. I can't, that's just kids. So I think that that's the other thing that we we really try to focus on and talk about is the fact that when you give people nice things, they will take care of it. And I think that is our other philosophy and why the campus is so important and beautiful is because we want people to want to stay there, right? We want people to want to stay there to the point that they can su- successfully exit. Mm-hmm. What else? What did we miss? What else do you want people to know about the work that you've done, about our place, about homelessness in the area? What did we miss that's important? Or what do you want people to take away? You know, I always mention this, and I think it's an important piece. I guess I will say two things. We first opened our nurse practitioner, Becky, was on the campus, and she is my little hippy-dippy, and I love her. And it was great because so many of the women were so used to just emergency care, right? Just every time I you know, I have a hangnail, I'm going to call Rims and I'm going to go to the hospital. So she was really great to be the person to show them like having a doctor or having a nurse that she's an APRN that you can go to is really important. And they are a critical piece to your, you know, success and, and recovery and everything too. But she had worked again with this population for many, many years. And she said, you know, it takes a really long time to become homeless. And I thought that was such a strange thing to say, because I think I just kind of imagine, you know, someone uses meth for the first time, they end up, you know, lose their job, they end up homeless, you know, whatever it may be. But if you think about it, and she said to me, think about how many people you would have to burn through in your life to end up at our place, right? Whether it be my friends, my family, my cousins, my whatever. I always tell my staff, I'm going to be on your couch before I'm here at our place. But really, I would have to burn through many, many people, even if I was making terrible choices to be at a point where I I have no other options, which is really what an emergency shelter is for women or families. I think it's important for the listeners to remember why our guests need time and why it's important to have that. Because if you come in with absolutely nothing, there is no way you can get everything you need to be successful in 30, 60, 90, you know, 120 days, right? So I think that's always been kind of that misconception of like, oh, someone made this one bad choice and then now they're experiencing homelessness. The other thing that I think is really important is I do feel like our unsheltered population is probably one of the most discriminated against groups. And I'm not saying that to take away from, you know, African-Americans or our LGBTQ plus community, but there are people that are not racist. There are people that are not homophobic, but most people say not in my backyard, right? So I think that the other thing to remember when engaging this population is to remember that they feel like nobody wants them. They feel like they are a burden to the community and to society. So really just that little bit of kindness that we can show and and really trying to get them into a service, right? A lot of groups believe, oh, you know, if we just, you know, give them meals or whatever it may be, that's that's wonderful. And it's it's amazing. But but really encouraging them to get into a shelter and seek those services and have the opportunity to change their life is really what what would be most beneficial and helpful to them. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was good to thank learn you. more about our place. Like I said, it was great to talk to Ben about kind of the early, yeah, early awesome. story of Rise yeah. and learned a little bit about our place in the beginning. But over the last few years, there's obviously been so much going on in this community around all of these issues. And it was great to have you on the show to share about what you're doing in that. Thank you. I appreciate it. I always love to brag about our place. It's it's our beautiful little slice of heaven 
over off of Glendale. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. That is a wrap on season number seven of Renoites. Of course, I am still around. There are live episodes that have been recorded, which will be released in the coming weeks. So continue to keep an eye on your podcast that make sure you're subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts so that you'll get notifications and won't miss any episodes. I will be back with new episodes, regular episodes at the beginning of 2024. So taking a little bit of time off over the holidays, but that time will be spent, as I said, planning for the next season. So if you have suggestions, ideas, want to get in touch, shoot me an email, Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. Thank you so much for listening. See you soon. See you soon.